0: because you may not have this in front of you. The prayer of agreement is one of the prayers that Jesus taught his disciples. He said if any two of you on earth will agree on anything it, uh, w- uh, on touching this earth it will be done for you by my father in heaven. Well, there's more than two in this room right now and with you together, there's far more than two. So we're coming in to agreement for this prayer and then I'm going to flow into another prayer which the Bible instructs us to pray i'm going to read to you the the scriptures on which this prayer is based today second corinthians 10, ten four For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they're divinely powerful to destroy strongholds ephesians six ten and thirteen through thirteen Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand. Before we get into the prayer, I just want to point something out to you from that. I know that the, the, that the enemy that is coming against us is this little tiny virus we cannot see, but it's destroying people's lives. But understand this, what the Bible teaches us is that behind everything like this, there's a spiritual force that's at work. So there's a spiritual force behind the COVID-19 virus that's giving it life force. The Bible tells us that if you take away a man's spirit, he will die. If you remove it from his body, his body will die. Because it takes a spirit being to animate a physical being. In the same way it takes a spirit being to give life and animate a destructive virus. And that spirit being, of course, is Satan. And that's good news because while the medical teams and the doctors are doing everything they can in the natural to find a way to stop this this little virus. We know the spiritual life and force that's behind that, and we've been given authority over that spiritual force and that spiritual uh, life, and that is Satan. So I'm going to pray this. I'm going to ask you to come into agreement with me. Lord, we come to you in prayer today, believing the promise in Second Chronicles seven fourteen, that if we humble ourselves and pray and turn from our wicked ways, you will. Hear our prayers and heal our lands. Our community, our nation, and world are in desperate need of your help, your comfort, and your healing power. Lord, we ask you to forgive us for turning our hearts away from you. Hear our cry today as we join with the body of Christ around the world to stand together against this COVID 19 crisis. Lord, Strengthen our minds, strengthen our emotions with the truth that you are greater than COVID-19. Your righteousness protects our hearts from despair. Your word enables us to walk through this crisis in peace. Although this is a physical disease, as believers, we know the enemy wants to take advantage of this moment. Together we stand in faith against the powers of darkness in this evil day. We put on the whole armor of God and stand firm on the promises of your word. With your armor, we stand protected from the fiery darts of panic and fear. We take up the shield of faith on behalf of our families, our churches, our cities, our nation, and nations around the world. And the hope of our salvation is our battle helmet. We declare the promise of your word that no weapon formed against us will prosper. Therefore, we pray in faith that COVID-19 will be eradicated, panic will stop, and God's power will fill the earth. We humbly ask all these things in the powerful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now we're going to pray, as the Bible tells us to pray, for our leaders and all of those in authority. The Bible doesn't say we have to agree with our leaders, it doesn't say we have to like our leaders, but it does command us to pray for them that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. So that's what we're going to do right now. So Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we thank you that there is great power in prayer, because our prayers are calling upon the great and almighty God to do what you've already ordained to do, We thank you, Father, that you have ordained and called men and women into positions of leadership, and you've done that so that your authority in the earth may be exercised and that there may be peace among your people and in the earth. And so, Father, we obey your command, and we come and pray for our president, and we pray for our vice president, and all of those in our national leadership. We pray especially right now, Father, that they would have the strength and the wisdom and the discernment to make godly decisions that will provide protection and provide peace and provide godly direction for this nation, especially in this crisis. We pray for unity among our leaders. Help them to wake up and realize that their disputes among one another for power and for ideology are now need to be set aside for the greater good of people. And Lord, may they rise up and become statesmen and not politicians. We pray, Father, especially in this place for Governor Raimondo and Governor Baker. Father, they never bargained to be in this position. And, Father, they've been placed in a position where they have to make decisions, difficult, challenging decisions that none of us would ever want to have to make. And they need our help. They need our prayers. They need our support. And so we come to you, Father, And we pray that You would give them physical strength because these crises can be so demanding on them physically and on their families. And we pray for their families that You would support them and strengthen them. We pray that You would give them wisdom, Father, and discernment to to know what to listen to and what not to listen to and to make decisions based on what they believe You're saying is best for their people. We pray, Father, for the counselors that you've given to them, the medical counselors that you've given to them, Father, especially those that you have put in position that know you and have your spirit living in them, that you would give them the the gifts of the spirit, Father, to operate so they would have supernatural wisdom and knowledge. And we pray for your continued protection. We pray for those, Father, that have already been afflicted with this with this disease we pray for those that are suffering right now for their recovery and we declare over them that jesus bore their sicknesses and carried their diseases and we take authority over the virus that's trying to destroy their body and their lungs and we command you to leave and come out in jesus name we pray for protection for those that are health care workers, that are on the front line ministering, Father, to their physical needs, that you would protect them, Father, and keep them safe. We plead the blood of Jesus over them. And we thank you, Father, for their continued protection. We thank you for the protection of our families, of this household, Father, not just this building, but this household of faith, this Faith Christian Center. And for all those that are watching and listening this morning, for that we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. I have one more thing to, to share uh, because there's so much confusion out there, things being published of preachers and people saying two things. First of all, about whether to go to church or not, whether we should be holding church or not holding church. I want to say, first of all, this is not persecution against the church. If it were persecution against the church, then the church would be the only ones subject to this ban of not being able to gather together. Secondly, we're not being told we can't preach the gospel. We're preaching the gospel boldly and openly now. The mandates of our government are for our protection right now. And we have to use wisdom Secondly, I want to say about that is even if my faith were to place where I know that I would not get this virus, even if I were exposed to it, and I'm not sure my faith is there at this point, but even if it were, were, the Bible tells me to make my decision not based on how strong my faith is, but where your faith might be. So if we open our doors and invite people in and say it's okay to come and worship together. We're encouraging people to come here and be physically present where others are when they may not have a faith at a level to protect them. And I'm not going to do that. Because Paul says, I'm to love my brother enough that I'm to to restrict my faith based on where my brother's faith is if it's weaker than mine. And that's what we're going to do here. And I believe that's wisdom. I'm not criticizing anybody else. I'm just saying that's the decision we've made here And that's why. The second thing I want to say about what's out there is there are a lot of statements by people that are prophecies of what this all means and what this doesn't mean. It's interesting that it seems like some of them don't agree with each other, which means the God they're listening to has different views, and that can't be. I'm not judging any of them. God hasn't spoken to me, and if He did, I'd be very careful about what I said about it. I asked God this morning what to do with all this. And I felt what the Lord telling me to do is just do what I say to do in my word. And that's to pray for our leaders. And that's to do what we're called here to do. And that's to walk in our relationship with the Lord. And that's to pray for people. And that's to love one another. And that's to do what God's word says. And I believe if we do those things, he will get us to where he's told us to go. We've been studying all this last year. All Jesus says to do is follow me. Well, that hasn't changed with this crisis. That hasn't changed with what we're going through. And I believe with all my heart, if we take up, if we commit to follow Him, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow Him, He'll get us where He wants us to be, when He wants us to be, and at the right time. And I believe that with all my heart. So don't get distracted by all those things. If you really believe, one fine, that's great. I have more confidence in some than others. But don't get distracted from what God's put us here to do. Satan is a master at distracting us even with good things. All right, that's sermon number two. Now we're going to get into the word that I believe God's put in my heart to bring to us this morning. So let's pray as I bring the message up here. Father, we thank you today for your faithfulness to us. Lord, we've said this many times and this is very true now. This has not taken you by surprise. And I believe, Father, that, that everything we've been, you've been working in us here at Faith Christian Center, as us personally, as well as us together as a church, the things that you've been working in our lives, the things you've been trying to show us are all to prepare us for just this time. I believe with all my heart that we're not here by accident right now, that You have called and ordained us for such a time as this. That means You have equipped us and You will continue to equip us for such a time as this. So I pray, Father, that You would continue to help us to keep our focus where it needs to be, on You and on Your Word and on Your Spirit who lives inside of us. And so today, as we open the Word of God together, I believe this is the Word that You've given us to bring today. And Father, as with every time, but especially now and especially today. My prayer is, Lord, that you would take the words you put in my heart and put on my mouth, and you would add the weight of your spirit, the anointing of your spirit, so your spirit could come across the airwaves, across the Internet, and to touch our hearts with what you want to say to each one of us. And for that I give you thanks in advance. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, I was, this is Palm Sunday, and I, you know, Lord, should I give a Palm Sunday address? And I, I thought about it, and, and in a way, way, this is. But I really feel to continue along with what God's been talking to us about. And we've been looking at this subject, and it's very appropriate right now for who is this God that we've been serving? Who is this God? And right now, in, in, a, in a time like this, in a crisis like this, When we've talked about this before, when when things that we put our trust in have gotten shaken and the things we're accustomed to being able to do to provide for ourselves and to give us comfort and assurance that in many ways we don't have access to those things, they've been taken away from us for this time and and we're told and we want to trust God and the question is, can we really trust Him? And I know that if we were gathered here together and we were 500 strong or whatever the number is, and I asked you, you know, how many of you trust God? I, the majority would raise our hands. But, but we're finding out now what it is we really believe. And that's good news because God already knows. So He's not shocked but we need to find out where we really are because God will meet you where you are, not where you want to be, not where you want other people to be, not where you're pretending to be. God will meet you where you are in your level of faith to help bring you up to where we need to be. So we've begun to look at who is this God we serve, and to do that we've gone back to look at how God revealed Himself to the people that He called to represent Himself, the nation of Israel. We talked about the fact that, that that the only way we can know what God is like is what He tells us. We can't go and figure God out. We can't understand what God is through our own imagination, through our own study. We can only know what God is like to what He re- chooses to reveal to us and to understand and receive that Revelation. Well, the good news is the Bible tells us for those of us who've invited Christ into our life, God has put His Spirit into us to reveal those things. All of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is designed to tell us you can't figure God out by your own pea brain, by your own intellect. No man can do that. It also tells us that God is revealing Himself to us because it says the Spirit, the Spirit of God searches the very depths of the heart of God and reveals them to us. It says, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the hearts of man all that God has prepared for those who love Him. Well, if you love Him this morning, God's put His Spirit in you to take the things that are in God's heart and nature and reveal them to you. But to begin to understand that process, we went back and we looked at God revealing Himself to his own people, Israel, after he brought them out of Egypt, in the bondage of Egypt, brought them out into the Sinai Desert, and brought them around Mount Sinai, and came down on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and Exodus 20... And began to reveal himself. The first thing he said about himself is, and this is the first command: I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. We saw first of all, I am the Lord. That refers to his name Yahweh, which is the self-existent one. I owe my existence to nobody. And everything and everyone owes their existence to me. I am the ultimate. And everything else comes from me and is created for my pleasure. And they said, I am that Lord, but I am your God. And we've talked about that over the last several weeks. God there represents your source of everything you need. Your identity, your protection, your provision, everything. And God saying, you've come out of a nation that had 2,000 gods. That were to do those things for you, but I am the only true God that can supply your needs. I am the only true God that can protect you, and I am the only true God that can tell you who you are, and I am your God. And we talked over the last two weeks about what that means. I want to go on to another part of who this God is, and to do that, we're going to look over in Deuteronomy. Last week, we went to Deuteronomy 5. The book of Deuteronomy is written about 39 years after the book of Exodus, and the purpose of this book is the nation of Israel, this next generation, is about to enter in to the promised land, and so God is reviewing through Moses the things He's done for Israel to prepare them to go in and to do this. So Deuteronomy 7, this is what God says about Himself, starting in verse 6. You are a holy people to the Lord God, um, who has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the people of the earth on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you are the least of all the people. But the Lord loves, because the Lord loves you, by the way, that applies to us. He didn't choose you and me because we're so special or because we're so numerous, but he chose us because he loves you and because he would keep his oath that he swore to your fathers, the Lord God brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh the king of Egypt. This is what this is what I wanted to get to. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God. There is no other God but him. And this is what he wants you to know today, wants you to know today. The faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations to those who love him and keep his commandment. Now, why is that important to us? everything god does everything he god he did with israel from this point on everything god does with people god does out of a covenant and that's what we're going to talk about today he is a covenant keeping god now why is that so important for us and pastor why you know that's a nice theological concept but why is that important today in my life in the middle of this crisis. It's vitally important, and that's why we're going to take time today to look at this. So in order to do this, we've got to look at, first of all, what does it mean, what is a covenant? And, and, and I, have, I used to have taught a course in the school we used to have here. I've taught it to our congregation here. And when I did it in a course, I would spend 10 hours teaching this subject, and we're going to reduce it to about 40 minutes or so. But a covenant is different than a contract. Now, I have a, a special background here because I was a lawyer for over 20 years and lawyers deal in contracts. And, and a, a contract is when is a binding agreement between two parties and it's made binding because each party makes a promise to one another. And that's what a contract is. So you and I would enter a contract where maybe you're a contractor, you're going to do some renovations in my house, and we sit down and you make a promise to me, I'll do this, this, and this, and I promise I'm going to pay you this amount, and we put it down in writing, this is what you promised, this is what I promised, and this is now a binding contract that if you break it or I break it, we can go to court to enforce it or get damages for it. There are contracts that aren't in writing, but they're just as binding. So what binds that contract is only how good my word is and how good your word is. Now if you've ever bought a house and borrowed money from a bank or borrowed money from a mortgage company, you signed a promise. It's called the promissory note. Your promise was they promised to give you whatever the amount of money is to lend it to you and you promised to repay it on these certain terms. But as much as they respected your promise they wanted some kind of assurance that was beyond that promise. They wanted what's called a mortgage. And what a mortgage is, is you literally give them a legal interest in your house to secure that you're going to do what you say you do. So that if you don't live up to your promise and don't make your payments, they have something to make them feel more secure than just your promise. They can come and take your house and sell it in order to pay off your debt. So, a covenant is where somebody, you commit something more than just your promise as the guarantee, the surety, or the assurance that you're going to perform what you promised. Now, There are different types of covenants. Back in the days when, when this is written, back in the days when Abraham lived, back even before that, man developed this idea of covenant so that he could have certainty and confidence in his dealings with, in their dealings with one another, just in case they couldn't trust one another's words. So they had various different kinds of covenants that they developed. The highest covenant was called the blood covenant. And what that why, the reason that was highest is when they entered into this covenant, there would be some way they cut their bodies so that blood was shed. And literally in the Old Testament, the word cutting covenant literally means to cut a covenant and to bleed. And so because your blood represents your life... When a blood covenant was entered into, they would cut their body somewhere and they would bind their hands or wherever the cut was made so that that blood could now be intermingled from one body into the other body. And in some cultures, they would drink the blood of one another. The whole idea was to take the, your blood and to somehow put it into my body. What that represented was now a combining together of my life and your life. And that had implications to it. First of all, it meant that everything I had, every asset I had, every liability I had, was now pledged to you for whatever you needed. So if, I, if you ran out of food and I had food, my food was now your food. So you would have a right to come to my refrigerator and just take it. You wouldn't even have to ask because it's just as much yours as it is mine. So it means that all my assets would be yours and all your assets would be mine. All my liabilities were now yours and all your liabilities were now mine. It also meant a pledge of my strength. If you got in trouble, I made a pledge of my life in order to save you and to rescue you. And you made that same pledge to me. And finally, it meant a combining of our identities together. It wasn't this we committed to do this. This was now because we're one. So if somebody did something to you, if we were in a blood covenant, they've now done it to me. Now this is a f- kind of a foreign concept to us in our day and age now because this is more of a West- Eastern cultural thing than it is our West- in our Western culture. But we have one institution that's created by God, that's based on this. And we're losing its significance in our culture today, but it's marriage. Marriage, the way God created it, is a blood covenant. And literally, in the, in the, in the, in the physical act of physical union between a man and a woman who's a virgin, there is a shedding of blood that's the sign of this covenant. And so when a man and a woman come together in holy matrimony, they've made a blood covenant. And that literally means, the Bible says, the two have now become one. They have the same identity. That also means that when I married my wife 53 years ago, almost 53 years ago, we now became one. All my assets and liabilities became hers. Her assets and liabilities became mine. She got all my all my baggage from the way I got, grew up. She didn't just get the handsome man she thought she was getting. She got everything else that came with me. And so, but it's a, but it's a commitment that's made. It's a commitment that's literally backed up by a pledge of my life. So I went through all of that because when we talk about God as a God of covenant... That's what God's using. Now understand this, and we're going to see this in a minute. So we're going to go over to Hebrews chapter 6. But but understand this. God, and we'll see this as we go through this. God's Word is truth. God cannot lie. But the problem that God has with man is we don't understand that about God. Our whole experience with whether we can trust people or not is our experience with people. And since not everybody can be trusted, or maybe they can be trusted, but they don't have the ability to come through with what they promised, so we've learned we can't fully trust people. That's why the bank wants a mortgage from you. They don't fully trust you're going to be able to repay them what you promised. So because we don't know that we can trust one another, we, we, we move, project that over onto God. How do I know that I can trust God? I can't even see Him. I can't even look in His eyes, at least with another man or some other person. I can look in their eyes and see whether they're paying attention to me. Do I trust them? You can't do that with God. So how do I know I can trust Him and take Him at His word? That's where covenant comes in. So we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 13. Just a second here. For when God made a promise to Abraham, we'll talk about that in a minute, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. So And so after he patiently endured, this is Abraham, he obtained the promise. We'll talk about what that means in a minute. And this is what I want to get, for indeed men swear by the greater, and an oath of confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. That means man decided that in order to make you know that you can trust what I'm saying, I'm going to swear by an oath. And what that means is I'm going to appeal to somebody or something that has a higher value to me than just my word. So there's an expression out there, well, I'm going to swear on my mother's grave. Well, that's kind of silly, but what somebody's saying is, I honored my mother. I love my mother. So when I say I'm swearing on my mother's grave, what I'm saying is, if I break this, that means I'm dishonoring my mother. In court in order for you to stand up there and before they'll take your testimony, you have to make an oath, an affirmation. It used to be you put your hand on the Bible and you swore on the Bible because people respected the Bible as an authority higher than their word. They don't do that anymore. They don't want to offend anybody. So now it's just a human oath. But the point of an oath is I'm saying you can trust this because I'm calling on a higher authority to back me up. That's what this is talking about. Okay, verse 17, God determined to show more abundantly the heirs of the promise, the immutability of His counsel. That means the unchangeableness of His Word, that His Word never changes, and confirmed it by an oath. So verse 17 saying, God, in order to show to His people that that His Word can be trusted He made an oath or a covenant with them. The next verse makes that clear. So that by two immutable, unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong consolation who have fled for, for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is before us. That hope is an anchor to our soul. And that's what we need right now is an anchor to our soul. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, God, in order to show man why we can trust His Word, keep in mind, we ought to be able to trust it because it's God's Word. First of all, He cannot lie. It's not that He won't. It's impossible for God to lie because John 17, 17 says, His Word is truth. It's not that God tells the truth, Whatever God says, that's what truth is. Truth is defined as whatever God says. So if God says something else, that's now truth. So God cannot lie, even if He wanted to. But by the second thing is God, even knowing He cannot lie, to give us an assurance, God said, I'm going to enter into a covenant with you. I'm going to... It's amazing. God says, I'm going to condescend even though what I would have the absolute right to require you to simply take me at my word, I'm going to, knowing your weakness, I'm going to come down to your level and I'm going to enter into a covenant with you because you understand what covenant is. So having said that, let's go look at what God did and how God did that. So we'll go now to Genesis 15. And this is where God enters into a covenant with a man named Abram. Now just by way of background very quickly here, God in order to form a nation for himself chose a man. He said, I'm going to form my own nation. I'm going to form my own nation. And so God chose a man out of a pagan society that worshipped the moon. And God called him and said, I'm going to call to you and I'm going to take you to a place where I have prepared for you. And then God makes a series of promises over in Genesis 12, which we will not turn to. God introduces himself to this man. Remember, he grew grew up in a society that worshipped the moon. And now the real living God is talking to him. And God says, I am going to bless you. And I am going to bless those that bless you. And if somebody comes against you and curses you, I'm going to curse them. In other words, I'm going to be God to you. And then a little time passes, and we're going to pick up on Genesis 15. And these, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. Now notice here, God's not saying, I'm going to provide a shield for you, Literally in the Hebrew, it says, I am. That's that self-existent one, Yahweh. I am is your shield. Shield is your protection. Somebody comes against you, I am going to be your protection. I am your protection, and I am your reward. Not I'm going to reward you, I am your reward. That amazing statement that God is making to a man. Now notice Abram's reaction verse 2. And Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar. And Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. So here's what's going on here. God's made this amazing promise to him. I am giving myself to you to be your protection and I am going to bless you. Now, Abram's first reaction, and this is so real, he's saying, whoa, wait a minute, how do I know I can believe you, because you haven't even given me a child? I don't have any children. In fact, the one born in my house is my heir. What he's referring to is the custom there, because in order, under the law at that time, there had to be a male heir in order to pass on an inheritance. It didn't go to a daughter. It went to a male heir. So if you had not, if your wife had not produced a son, you would adopt a son to be the beneficiary of your inheritance. So Abram has already delegated one of his servants, Eleazar, to be the inheritance, but he's saying to God, if you're the one that's going to bless me, how do I know I can believe that? I don't have any children. And here's the problem. At the time when Abram says this and God comes to him, Abram's 75 years old. He's past childbearing age. His wife is 65. She's past childbearing age. And there's a bigger problem. She's been barren her whole adult life since she's been married. She's been barren. So there's three reasons why this can't happen. So Abram's reaction is perfectly normal, he turns to God, he's basically, how do I know I can trust what you are saying?" That's what we're talking about this morning. Look at God's answer. Verse 4, And the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body. And look, look at God, Abram can hardly believe a son being born at this time, and God's going to expand his vision. Then he brought him out and said look towards heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them and he said to them so shall the number of your descendants be. In other words I'm going to give you something beyond one child you're going to be the father of many nations see the number of the stars that's what I'm going to provide through you and he doesn't even have one child yet. God's a dreamer but God doesn't dream imaginary things God's visions for what he wants to do through Abram. Verse 6, and it said, and Abram believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land or of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit. So now he's saying, Not am I going to give you offspring, I'm going to give a land to you to inherit it. And look at Abram. Verse 8. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? How do I know that what you're telling me is so far beyond what I believe can happen, so far beyond that I don't see any way that can happen because with my natural understanding, with all my training and ability, it, I can't produce a child and my wife can't do a child and you're talking millions of people and you're going to give me a land and it's just me and I don't have anything to do that with? How do I know I can believe you? How do I know I can trust you? And Abraham tells him to bring him. So what happens is, Abraham, God puts Abraham to sleep. And he tells him to bring certain animals. And when Abraham goes to sleep, God divides these animals up in this dream and has them walk has them walk between the pieces of the animals. I'm not going to take the time you know, time to go through all of this this morning, but, but I will at some other time. But what God is doing here in this vision and dream that Abraham's having is God is walking through the steps of entering a blood covenant with Abraham. So Abraham understands what this means when he wakes up. He knows God is saying to him, here's how you know that I'm going to do what I said because I'm entering into a blood covenant with you where I have committed myself to perform this if I break my covenant with you. Then, okay. Now over in chapter 17, which we're not going to go through. Let's go down to verse 18. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your descendants I have given you the land from the rivers of Egypt to the great river the river Euphrates the Canaanites the Chesazites the Canaanites the Hittites the Perizzites all the otherites and all the Jezakites everything God does with Israel from now on is based on this covenant promise that God has made in Genesis 17 God renews this covenant with him and here's what's very important in Genesis 17, when God renews this covenant, he's now 99 years of age, God gives him a mark of this covenant. What I didn't explain to you is when they would enter into a blood covenant in other cultures, there would be some mark of this covenant. It would either be a mark on their forehead, wherever the blood had flowed, whether it was on their hand, their wrist, something so that somebody seeing them would understand they're in covenant with somebody else and they better be careful how they deal with this person because they weren't just dealing with them they were dealing with whoever they were in covenant with In Genesis 17, God gives Abraham a mark for this covenant and it's the rite of circumcision. The circumcision of every male in that his household and every male born of him on the flesh of their foreskin. That's what circumcision was intended to be. It's the mark. So somebody that was circumcised in his household, it was a mark. They were in covenant with the living God. Now what's this got to do with us today? Pastor, that's a great historical study, great thing. I want to go through a Bible story with you that if you were raised in church, you've heard this story in Sunday school, but I want to show you the significance that this has for us. And it's over in 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's the story of David and Goliath. But we're going to look at this story through a particular glass, through a particular set of eyes, and it's the eyes of covenant, that we've just now talked about. And here's the situation. Um, This is the whole chapter, but we're going to go through just parts of it. Um, I'm in 1 Samuel 17. Okay. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle, verse 1, and were gathered at Succoth, which belongs to... Let me give you the background here. What's going on here is is Israel is now being in battle with the Philistines. They're mortal enemies. And we're coming on a battle scene and the the Philistines are lined up on one side of the valley up on a a ridge and the the Israelites are lined up on the other side of the ridge and they're facing each other and when this scene opens they've been facing each other for 40 days. And and it talks about, Well, I think I'll I'll read this part. So we're going to go to verse 4. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath whose height was six cubits and a span. That's about nine feet, somewhere between nine and twelve feet, depending on which type of cubits you look at. He had a, so he's, about, he's, he's nine to twelve feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. That's that, that, uh, to protect you against arrows and protect you against a sword. It's an interlocking uh, mesh, uh, metal uh, mesh. And the weight of his coat was... Five thousand shekels—that's 125 pounds. His armor weighed 125 pounds, and he's bronze armor on his legs and his bronze javelin between his shoulders, and the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, with its iron spearhead, which weighed 600 shekels—that's 25—that's 15 pounds. The head of the spear was 15 pounds. And he had a shield-bearer went out before him. That's a man who went out. A shield in the Old Testament is a piece of metal or or shield that went from the the floor up to the top of their head. So it was a full-body shield. This man went out in front of him. So here's the scene. And he comes out every day. And he stood and cried to the armies of Israel and said to them, verse 8, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? So he's comparing himself to, the, to, to Israel's army and saying, I'm a Philistine. All you are are servants of Saul. That's their king, their general. Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. And if he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. If we prevail, I prevail against him and kill him, then he shall be your servant. Look at verse 10. And the Philistine says, I defy the armies of Israel, the armies that belong to Israel this day, give me a man that we may fight together. Verse 11, And when Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. let stop there a second. That applies to us today because we're being told who we are. We're being told we're weak, we're vulnerable, and there's a disease out there that can kill and destroy us. And therefore we are to be afraid and we are to hide. And here was Saul's army, the army of Israel, being told by their enemy who they were, that they were going to be defeated, and they listened to the enemy, and they went, and they hid, and they were afraid. All right. Park that in your brain. Okay. Now what we're going to shift the seam. Now there's going to arrive on the scene a little boy, a teenage boy named David. He was the youngest of eight sons. His older brothers were in the army and this young boy because he was the youngest was taking care of his father's sheep out in the wilderness. We'll talk about that in a minute. And his father said, I want to find out how my sons in the army are doing so I'm going to send a care package with them and for their commanding officer and I want you to go and check on them and come back and tell me. So David arrives at the scene just as they're setting up on one for this battle array and he arrives on the scene and he sees what you and I have just been talking about okay we're going to look here at um, uh, verse 20 so David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep the keeper and took the things and went to as Jesse had commanded that's his father and he came to the camp as the army was going out to fight and shouting for battle for Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array against the army and David left the supplies in the hand of the supply keeper and ran to the army and came and greeted his brothers. He's the teenage kid in the family. And he talked with them and there was the, then the champion of the Philistines, Goliath came out by name and he did exactly what he said before. And the men of Israel, verse 24, saw the man and fled from him and they were dreadfully afraid. So David now sees this same scene we've been talking about, but look at his reaction. So here's a background. While these men, brothers, were training in the army, David was out in the field taking care of his father's sheep where there was no fellow soldier out there to protect with him. There was no protecting him against the enemies. He had learned the covenant we've been talking about, and he had learned by practice to put his faith in the covenant. And what we're going to see is at one point he was attacked by a lion. That tried to just kill, eat the sheep. At another point, he's attacked by a bear trying to kill the sheep. And standing on this covenant, he had defeated the bear and he defeated the lion. So he knew that God was faithful to this covenant. And now this man who understood covenant, not a man, he's a teenage boy, understands covenant, has showed up on a field where the professional soldiers who have lost sight of this covenant, they know the covenant, but they're not living under the covenant. They're seeing something that's threatened them, telling them who they are, and they're afraid and they run back and hide. So let's watch how a man who understands covenant reacts to the threat. Let's go, to, um, uh, let's go down to verse 26. And David spoke to the man who stood with him and said, What shall be done to the man that kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? And look what he says. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? He's saying, who is this man who has no covenant with God? This man has no mark of a covenant on him. He has no God to protect him. He's only standing out there in his own strength, in his own armor, in his own size. He's amazed. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Who is this man with no covenant with God? Look at this, that he should defy the armies of the living God. Goliath told them that they were the army that belonged to Saul. The soldiers saw themselves as the army that belonged to Saul because they had lost sight of the covenant that they were in with Jehovah God. But David, who believed in that covenant, looks at this whole situation through the terms of covenant. And David says... This man has no covenant with God and he's defining, defying not the armies that belong to Saul but the armies that belong to and are in covenant with the true and living God. What's the contest here? He's a man of faith. And the people answer and tell him if you kill him then you get, his, you get Saul's daughter in marriage you're free from taxes and all kinds of other benefits. And, and so David goes on And we're going to have to move on. Verse 31. Now when the words which David spoke were heard, they were reported to Saul who sent for him. Now the king hears this report because the man of faith spoken. And it gets to the king. There's somebody here who may be willing to go fight Goliath. And so what happens is David comes to him and, and David says to Saul the same thing. And Saul says, you're just a kid. How can you go out and fight this giant? Because basically I'm afraid to go at him. The soldier's afraid. Why do you make you think you go?" God? And, and David says, because I know the covenant I have with my God. I've been a shepherd taking care of my father's sheep, and a bear came, and I tore his head off. A lion came, and I tore him to pieces, not in my own strength, but in the strength of my God I'm in covenant with. So now Saul says, okay, you can go out there. Let's see if you can fit my armor on you. And they tried to put David, Saul's armor on David, and David says, I can't fight in this thing because that's not tested. I'm not used to this. So David said, I don't know what this armor will do, but I know what my God will do that I'm in covenant with. That has been tested. And so now David decides to fight with his own weapon. So he goes out and takes a slingshot. You know the story. He gets five smooth stones. And now we're going to go to the battle scene. Let's go down to... uh Oh, go down to... Verse 42, and when the Philistine looked down and saw David, because David's now come out to answer the call, he was disdained him because he's only a youth, ruddy and good looking. So the, the Philistine's insulted. He's looking at David through natural eyes. This is no challenge to him. This is an insult to send against him, this teenage boy with no armor, no training, and he's just got a slingshot. Verse 43, so the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his own gods. And the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds and the air and the beasts of the fields. And look what David's answer is. Look at David who sees this whole thing, not in natural terms, not in terms of how big Goliath is, how well armed he is, but he sees Goliath in terms of the covenant that this man has no covenant with God and he has defied the people that have a covenant with God. He's defied the God who's promised to protect us. Verse 45 And David said to the Philistine and you come at me with just a sword and a spear and a javelin in other words all you've got is a sword and a spear and a javelin look at what he says but I come to you In the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. In other words, you're in trouble. All you've got is a shield and a javelin and a a shield bearer. I come to you in the name of the Lord God Almighty. By the way, you've defied Him, not Israel. Look at verse 46. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcass to the camp of the Philistines as the birds of the air and of the beasts of the field. And all the earth... Look at this. And all the earth will know that there is a God in Israel. In verse 47. And all this assembly who should have believed you and trusted you will know that the Lord does not say by sword... And by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give it into your hands. And then we're not going to take the time, but you know the story. David took those stones, and he didn't walk into the battle trembling. He ran at the giant, and he swung that sling around, and then at the right time, he released that sling. And I don't have time this morning to act this out, but I've done this here before. It dawned on me one day, David throws this sling, but Goliath has in front of him, at a strategic distance, so there's an angle of protection, a shield that's as tall as he is. So in order for that stone to hit Goliath, it has to go over the shield and come down. Not only that, Goliath is wearing a helmet that has a thick bronze piece that comes down over the nose piece, because that's the most vulnerable part of the head. And David throws the stone up and it comes down. It goes with such force it goes through the, the bronze protection and embeds in his head and stuns him and knocks him down dawned on me one day David didn't say I come to you in my own strength I don't come to you in my own accuracy but I come to the name of the Lord that I'm in covenant with who's promised that if somebody comes against me they've come against him and he will fight my battle so all i got to do is throw the rock up in the air and God will take that rock and God threw it down through that helmet and struck him dead and he went over and he cut the head of the Philistine off with his own sword what's that got to do with you and me today? Is that just an old Bible story? No. Remember, God's made covenant promises to us. And God's word alone should be enough. But God said, I've given my covenant to you. And you said, but yeah, but pastor, that's an Old Testament story. Galatians chapter 3, we're not going to have time to turn over there this morning. Galatians chapter 3, G- Paul writes to the Galatian church and said, God entered into a covenant with Abraham And his seed. Not seeds plural. God entered into a covenant with Abraham. As a placeholder. Until the seed of Abraham. The Christ. The Messiah could come. And then God entered into a blood covenant with him. On the cross. God cut a blood covenant. With Christ. On the cross. So that Christ. Redeemed us. From the curse of the law, and that through Christ, the blessing of protection, the blessing of provision, the blessing of the covenant would be ours who are in Christ. So if you're in Christ, you are in a blood covenant with God through Christ. And the strength of this covenant isn't your faithfulness. The strength of this covenant is the faithfulness of the one you're under. So it's a covenant between Jehovah God and the Messiah Christ, the Son of God, who have come together in a blood covenant. And you and I, by faith in Christ, are the beneficiaries of this blood covenant. So what does that mean to you and me today with the threat of this virus coming against us? What does it mean to you and me today with the threat of a potential global economic collapse? What does it mean today? Because God has made promises to us. As we look at a time for comfort and assurance, so often people turn to the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That Psalm talks about provision. It talks about guidance. It talks about protection from your enemy. Psalm 91 talks about no plague shall come near our dwellings no matter what happens on the right or the left it won't come near you amazing statements for those who dwell in the secret place of the Most High those two Psalms as well as almost all the rest of them were written by this same shepherd boy they were written out of experiences that he had out in that wilderness Living out a covenant that God had made to him with the need for food, the need for water, the need for protection against a lion and a bear and whatever else came. These were written out of a man who had grown and experienced the covenant. So God is saying to us today that you don't have to worry or be afraid as long as you keep your eyes and trust in the God of covenant. Does that mean that we don't take steps to protect ourselves? No, that would be foolishness. David did go out there with a slingshot. But it means we don't have to be afraid. It means we need to look to this God and trust this God. Take those Psalms, those promises of God and expect to see them come past because they're not just words written thousands of years ago. They are a covenant promise of God to you today. But you see, David had put those words in his heart. He didn't just read them. He didn't just quote them. Those words came out of his heart So you have to take these words of promises from God and it's your responsibility to get them into your heart. And notice once they were in David's heart, he spoke them out. He told Goliath what was going to happen. So you need to declare every day, no weapon formed against me shall prosper in my household. You need to declare that that, that no plague shall come near my dwelling. Declare those words boldly because God has spoken those words to you in covenant. But you have to declare those against the enemy. You have to speak them. We don't have time to get in this today, but words are so important. Hear the words. Goliath spoke words. He told them what they were, and he told them what he was going to do. And the mistake Israel made is they listened to it 80 times, twice a day for 40 days. They listened to him, and they believed him. His word of what he was going to do to them got down in their hearts, and they shrunk back, and they hid and I'm concerned many Christians are doing the same thing. They're watching the news. They're hearing the threats and they're speaking them out to one another and they're hiding back in fear when God's put us here at such a time to be victorious. So we need to meditate on these promises. We need to get them down in our heart and then we need to speak them out because it's what God said. Is it foolishness to speak it out? No, it's what, repeating what God said. No plague shall come near your dwelling. But that word has to be put into your heart first, not your head, into your heart. And then it has to come out of your mouth. God wants you to have absolute certainty that everything God says in here for you, He is already done. He is prepared to do in your life. It can be a reality in your life. But your responsibility is to put the word in your heart and then to speak it out in your mouth. I don't want to end this today without giving an opportunity to anybody this morning that may be watching that's never invited this Christ into your life. This covenant that we have talking about this morning is a covenant that's an offer to everybody.